Indie or AAA? AAA. Free to play or pay to play? Free to play. iOS or Android? iOS. Super Mario or Sonic? Well, since I worked at Sega, I have to say Sonic. (laughs) You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf. Today on the show, we have Joseph Kim, founder of the blog Game Makers. Especially exciting because we're kind of kicking off a new series on Level Up focused on game product management, um, which is obviously kind of a key area of expertise for you. So we'll kind of be looking into issues that matter to product managers at games, exploring different approaches and best practices in the field. And to kind of kick us off, and a very good example of something like that would be the topic of today's show, which is root cause analysis and how this problem solving method can be used for optimizing game design. Before we sort of dive into what sounds like a very meaty topic, Joe, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you got started in the game industry, what your journey has been like uh, since. Sure. So I actually started off as a software developer and then, you know, working for um, companies like Cisco Systems and Lawrence Berkeley Labs as a developer, I you know, kind of had the entrepreneurial bug, tried that. The way that I first got into the gaming business is just during the early days of social, launching a social game called League of Heroes. Mm. And did pretty well during those early days when anything you put up was kind of successful. Um, <laughs> but did that until, until Facebook credits. And then I started a mobile gaming studio during a time when I felt like I was completely not ready to start my own studio. But uh-huh. um, gave it a shot, then did some consulting, wound up working for a company called Fun Plus, um, where you know I, I led the development of a game called King of Avalon. So most of my career actually was on the studio and development side, but from there I kind of shifted gears and moved into publishing, working for Sega. And so was working in a mobile game publishing at Sega. Mm-hmm. I was at NBC Universal for not too long, actually just only about 13 months. And then as of about you know one or two months back, I'm now trying a new life as a sort of wannabe YouTuber and trying to start my own game studio. So that's that's sort of um, my background in a nutshell. And that's Game Makers for anyone who wants to check it out. Yes, that's right. Perfect. So let's dive in. I think probably just to cover our bases for anyone in the audience who doesn't know, can you give us sort of like a brief explanation of what root cause analysis is? Yeah, I think the the fundamental um, thing with root cause analysis is just trying to find the root cause of a problem. So trying to solve issues at the source level by first just kind of identifying what the key issue, like not focusing on the symptom so much as trying to find what the underlying issue with a game or the, the cause of why a game may have, for example, poor KPIs and monetization retention or why overall revenue is not high enough or why we're seeing high CPIs in UA, for example. But basically just trying to take a very fundamental approach and try to identify what the core issue is that's causing these types of problems. And and this is accomplished through various types of thinking, analysis, and tools. How common is this kind of very intentional approach to problem solving in gaming? I would say that in my experience, the majority of companies and product managers out there are taking more of an ad hoc approach. And so they may not be completely structured. Mm -hmm. I do know that there are some companies out there, you know, I've, I've worked with folks who were previously at at companies like Zynga or Scopely, where 
that practice is a little bit more ingrained. But I, I would say that, in my opinion, the majority of studios don't have a formal sort of discipline or process around this type of thinking and analysis. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you think they um, it's probably valuable that they do. I mean, it's worth mentioning that you actually gave a presentation on root cause analysis at a recent IronSource GPM forum event, which for anyone who doesn't know is a game product uh, manager forum series of events that we're doing around the US and and globally even. Um, And I'm guessing kind of your motivation there was that you think this has value for game product managers trying to sort of tackle issues that they're noticing in a game and may not know how to get to, um, I guess, the root cause. That's right. So as product managers in in free-to-play games, you know, this optimization issue is a very common objective. And what we're seeing just is that the importance of life operations and optimization is just becoming increasingly more and more important. And so for live ops and to do optimization, root cause analysis often becomes, you know, vitally important. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of the motivation, you know, some of the things that I've been seeing is that there aren't many standards around this in our industry today. And because the type of products and issues we're confronted with as PMs in free-to-play games are so complex, involve so many variables that I do think it's pretty important to understand whether the work you are doing is actually the right thing and that you're focused in the right direction. That's what root cause analysis can help do. And just a final point here is that I actually don't see a lot of specific training for this kind of thinking and analysis outside of, let's say, you know, in in the management consulting field. Interesting. Do you think that the problems that kind of game product managers specifically are are confronted by, do you think there's something very unique about being a product manager for a game versus other products? I mean, obviously, um, you know, it will differ from industry to industry and vertical to vertical. But is there something specifically unique about being a game product manager that's different from being a, a product manager in other fields? I do think there is a difference. I think that we're kind of fortunate being in games because, you know, it's a very vibrant industry. There's a lot of change. And so in terms of the amount of change and in terms terms of the free-to-play model, whereas in a lot of other industries, product managers may be dealing with a monetization system that's a lot more simple and easier to model and understand like a subscription-based model, right? Mm -hmm. And so because of the number of variables and complexity, because we have all sorts of different types of events, we have sales and merchandising, we have you know, a lot of different types of games and genres and a lot of different variables. We've got, you know, a lot of things, whether it's user acquisition or a sale or all these different things that can be impacting a game that the level of complexity, I would say, is a lot higher in games, which I consider a benefit. I think it's actually one of the advantages of being in gaming is that we are able to see a lot of these different kinds of problems and this level of complexity that I don't think is characterized by other industries as as much as we see in games. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've said it's not this kind of practice and certainly sort of being formal about it doesn't really exist in the gaming industry, but it does in management consultancy. How is it then that you sort of stumbled upon or became familiar with root cause analysis yourself? Well, so I would say in two ways. So I, I did work as a management consultant for four years back in the day. And you know, anyone who has a chance to work at a management consulting firm, I think it is a great training. And you know, the training in terms of how to think logically and in a structured way is Right? But then I would say the other way that I've come across doing root cause analysis is just experience having worked both on the studio side and as a publisher for the past, you know, eight, nine, ten years. And in the talk you gave on root cause analysis, you actually sort of covered a fair amount of material outside of the mechanics or, or the methodology of doing uh, root cause analysis, which was super interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, about these sort of different uh, thinking approaches? Sure. So I do think that oftentimes people think about doing root cause analysis 
analysis is just about learning a specific methodology or mechanics or just another form of analysis. So one of the things that I wanted to cover in that talk is that there are actually other aspects that can impact how you do root cause analysis that aren't often talked about, like how you should actually be thinking, like the actual type of thinking you need to do. And secondly, in terms of the kind of environment and culture that you are operating in that could impact how you execute or how you think about root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. So let's sort of dive into kind of environmental and cultural factors first. What are the sort of key cultural or company DNA pieces that you need to have in place to do root cause analysis or to problem solve effectively? Right. So in terms of environmental and cultural factors, I think that the main issue there is having a culture that is open and one in which, because I think that what happens is in, in different environments, as a specific example, let's say that, you know, you've just launched a game and that you've got specific revenue targets against that game and the game has not performed very well. And there's a lot of pressure for you to come up with, you know, and let, let's say leadership comes to you and they're like, hey, we need to have a presentation that explains why this game isn't performing and what you're going to do about it. And we need that right now. <laughs> well, in that scenario, you know, it kind of forces a product manager to go into a way of thinking and to like try and address this that may not be the right way. And in other environments, you know, you might I have identified a problem, but you know, typically in, in some certain large organizations, there could be often, you know, sacred cows where you, you're not able to highlight or to identify a, a specific person or cause of a problem because it just wouldn't be politically correct to do that. And so I do think that the environmental part of being in the right environment, having the right kind of culture that allows you to, you know, do the analysis correctly is often problematic. How many gaming companies do you think there are which succeed in creating this environment of openness and kind of uh, trust where it's not about controlling the narrative or sacred cows, um, but kind of a very open and like a readiness to, to sort of tackle the problem and understand what's going on? Is it sort of like, uh, you know, disappears or becomes impossible in a larger kind of more corporate gaming structure or um, and sort of like naturally occurs in an indie studio more or is it really more about the people? versus the size or the structure of the company? In terms of the first question, which was, you know, how many companies have that type of organization? I would say that, you know, it, it's hard for me to put a specific number on it, but I would say in terms of a lot of the companies that I have come across, it's generally more about where in the spectrum you are in terms of like having a completely, you know, sort of open uh, culture with direct communication where there aren't sacred cows, where it's easy to like have the right sort of environment versus the, the complete opposite. There are more organizations that are lying somewhere in that spectrum. But I would say in terms of like the number of companies that have really nailed it. Or even like a percentage. Just to kind of throw a number out there and to guess, I would probably guess that it's probably 10% or less. Wow. In, in terms of being like completely open and having a really great environment to do that. Mm -hmm. And as to whether it's kind of a feature of indie studios versus larger companies or it's not connected? I think that, um, so there, there is a view that it's a lot harder to do with the larger companies, but in my opinion, it's not so much the size of the organization. It's really more about the people and leadership. And so there are large organizations out there, whether it's like Amazon or Tesla, or Bridgewater, where you do have a more open and conducive environment. So in my view, again, it's more about the leadership that creates the right culture and environment. And I also think there are some larger companies that have been very open and have documented the 
right way of doing things. And so a company like Blizzard early on is a company that seems to have done things the right way. And they've kind of written about, you know, some of their culture and philosophy in ways that they've kind of operated their business. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, gaming companies overall are becoming more intentional? Or I mean, maybe they always were, but becoming more intentional about the company culture that they're building, um, employee happiness, uh, avoiding burnout. I know, you know, Supercell has a very clear narrative around their kind of company structure and culture and how the two sort of feed in together to produce uh, great games. You have Graham Games that also have a very kind of strong focus on how their company culture is kind of the foundation for creating um, successful games. Do you think that sort of happens more often, this is or happening more often in the last few years versus sort of like 10 years ago? Um, or is it, again, kind of more a function of who leadership is and, and who, who makes up the company? I, mean, I think there is a lot of conversation about culture and values, but what I'm not seeing is I'm not actually seeing the actual implementation and specific initiatives to actually drive that culture and values. And so companies like whether it's Bridgewater or Amazon are, in my opinion, very, very rare or mm -hmm. Blizzard for that matter. And, you know, even now I would say Blizzard is probably going away from a lot of the core culture and values that had allowed them to become successful. Right. Because I mean, culture is a live, it's a live product. You can't sort of just decide what it is and, and then leave it be. It needs to sort of be constantly nurtured. Yes, exactly. The culture needs to be constantly iterated and improved upon and, and watched. And, and so I do think that the larger the organization, there is a little bit more risk in the sense that the larger and older the organization, there become sort of processes and ways of thinking that become a little bit old. And there's just, I would say that when you're a startup and when you're a lot smaller and your survival is on the line, there, there's a much greater willingness to try new things and to be more open because if you're not, you're, you're going to die. Mm. And I do think that there is that aspect of being a smaller company or indie company does lend itself. Right, right, right. There, there's a greater compulsion to do that. Mm -hmm. So now onto an equally complex topic, diving into different kinds of thinking. In your presentation, you go through three, uh, thinking fast and slow, reductionist and uh, holistic and global versus local. Now, each of these could easily sustain uh, a whole podcast episode on their own. Uh, but for our purposes, maybe could you sort of take us through these different ways of thinking, why they matter in the discussion about root cause analysis and kind of how they can each be used um, in helping kind of product managers solve problems? Sure. So maybe we could just take one at a time. The first was this concept around thinking fast and slow. And this concept actually comes from a book by the author Daniel Kahneman, mm -hmm. who argues that there are basically two types of thinking. The first he calls system one, and the second he calls system two. And system one is sort of automatic, fast, and sort of unconscious way of thinking. So if you saw you know, a, a bear in the wilderness, the instant reaction is, oh, I need to run away. That's kind of system one thinking, right? And system two thinking is, is sort of the more effortful, slow, controlled, and deliberate type of thinking. So as, as another example, if I ask you what's two plus two, that kind of thinking in your brain would sort of kick off the system one type of thinking. One would hope. <laughs> one, one, one would hope, yeah. And let's say I asked you what's the square root of 11 or what's 13 times 17, then you've got to spend a little bit more time and then system two type of thinking would sort of kick in. And the point that Daniel Kahneman makes is that different kinds of problems require different types of thinking. And to some degree, I kind of imagine some people in our audience naively just thinking, oh, come on, that's obvious. That's just deep thinking. But I actually think this sort of naive view permeates the majority of organizations. And I, I think you'd be shocked by the number of people who actually don't do deep thinking against 
critical problems and you know the the few who actually do for really deep fundamental hard problems will take the time to block out three to four hours of time to just focus on thinking really critically mm. and carefully about a specific problems. And so in my view, there are a lot of people and a lot of um, what I call sort of checklist organizations, meaning organizations that are just about, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z, check, check, check. So if there is a task or issue about really thinking deeply against a critical problem, it's just sort of half-assed and people just don't really realize, like you can say it and you can talk about it, but then really understanding the importance and actually executing this deep thinking against hard problems, I believe is not very common. And so if you believe me, the impact of this on what I would call naive organizations is if they face an obvious problem, then they're fine. But if they're faced with a complicated problem that requires very careful analysis, then I think they're basically hosed. And as we had talked about, one of the characteristics of the gaming industry relative to other industries is that it's very complex and, it, and there are certainly very difficult problems that uh, product managers are going to be faced with. And that's kind of the point also that Kahneman's making is also that people use system one thinking even when they think they're using system two. Yes. Um, um, so they'll be confronted by a tough problem and you'll think that you're, you'll sort of be like, I don't really know how to answer this question. So my brain's going to ask me a different one that's related, but much easier to answer. I'm going to answer that one and think that I put effort into thinking about it. But really, it was still your system one kind of thinking hat that was uh, in play. 100% agree with that. And going back to the environmental and cultural factors, I mentioned a situation where a lead PM on a product that let's say the launch isn't very successful and let's say leadership or somebody saying, hey, we need an answer right now, then that's going to force you to just like come up with something very fast and quick. And so if that lead PM says, oh, actually, I need a week or two weeks to really think carefully and to like do a lot of different analysis, that just can't happen in those organizations that are structured in that way. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's thinking fast and slow, uh, reductionist and holistic. Right. And so this is actually a very complicated topic. And so this concept is related to a class of thinking around what are called complex systems and what's called complexity theory, which is pretty closely associated with a lot of like very difficult to understand stuff like AI, genetic programming and other like really hard stuff. But I just talked about mm. the high level concept of this notion of holism versus reductionism. And the point here is that especially in like western culture there's generally this bias towards reductionist or kind of scientific thinking and what is meant by reductionism is a way of like how do you think about breaking down complex problems and i think the typical western reductionist approach is to break down complexity by just breaking down a problem into subcomponents mm -hmm. and addressing that complexity through division mm -hmm. so without going into all the details behind this there, there are a lot of you know, issues and problems with this specific type of approach. And I mean, I actually, you know, talked about the advantage of structured and logical thinking when I when we talked about, you know, the type of analysis that you learn as a management consultant. But I think that you also have to have different kinds of thinking and, and not just the sort of anal analytical component based approach, which may not be the best approach against all classes of problems. And there should be different 
types of ways that you think about different problems. Also because the game is not, I mean, I guess it is divisible, um, but it's also kind of an ecosystem that works in a very sort of dynamic way where different parts are interacting with the whole. That, that's so right. dividing everything up into, into subcomponents may not necessarily sort of lead you to understanding where the root of the problem lies. Yeah, I think the best way to explain this would be just to give you a specific example. So let's talk about holism for, for just a minute. So let's give you another example where the environment matters and you can't just de compose a problem into parts. And so let's say that, you know, you're walking through a park and you see this really beautiful flower. And so if you're like, oh, this is a really beautiful flower, I want to take it home. And you take the flower and you take it home with you, that flower is going to die. Why? Mm -hmm. Because a flower needs soil to grow and gain nourishment. It also needs the sun and in short, it needs its environment to survive. And so often, one of the things that often happens with this sort of reductionist decomposition based approach is that it doesn't take the environment into context. And so, you know, time and time again, I think we're confronted with issues and problems where for lack of a better analogy, product managers are taking this flower home and then they're scratching their head about why does this flower die? Because you have to also in some situations and with some complex problems and situations, you know, you have to have the full context that the holistic part of thinking. Mm -hmm. And finally, the global versus kind of local. Okay. And so this issue was popularized by uh, the Silicon Valley blogger, now venture capitalist, Andrew Chen, about how optimization leads to incremental improvement. But the thing that I think product managers need to keep in mind is that you could be optimizing and making incremental improvements, but you might be sitting at a local maxima, but there may be some other global maxima elsewhere that could lead to much more dramatic improvements in performance. And I won't cover this in too much detail. I think if people are interested, if you just sort of Google Andrew Chen, global versus local maxima, I think um, there's a lot of good documentation that talks about that. But I think the caution that I would give to a lot of product managers is just to be really careful about optimizing against a local maxima and not pushing, you know, game designs or features. I just don't see them pushing enough mm. so that they're able to achieve much bigger global maxima by thinking bigger, trying to push bigger changes. And, you know, I, I would say Fortnite is a good example where, you know, that game was really failing, but because of Battle Royale and Battle Pass, they wound up finding a much bigger global maxima from a gameplay retention and monetization perspective. So how, well, maybe this is a subject for another podcast um but what's kind of a way that a product manager can kind of just say to themselves okay i need to think bigger because thinking big is, is a very nice phrase and is important but it's also difficult to do precisely because it's kind of limitless what advice would you give to a game product manager kind of sitting and telling themselves okay i think i've probably tapped out my kind of incremental improvement i need to go bigger now but where do i even start i mean one there are a couple of types of specific structured ways of thinking that can help here the first is this notion of expected outcome outcomes, which was popularized by Zynga, where, you know, for all the changes that you're looking for to try and be realistic about what the potential impact of those changes are. And then if just realistically thinking, you just can't get to a point where you're going to be driving performance enough, then you have to then start thinking bigger. Do we introduce a fundamentally new game mode or change gameplay in a really big way, for example? Or do we change pricing or do sales or merchandising in a very dramatic new way, right? And so I think this is actually as much art as science, mm -hmm. but 
in terms of a structured way of thinking about it, I would think about using an approach like whether it's expected outcomes or rice or something mm-hmm. like that. And talking about kind of the, I guess, habits and sometimes unconscious habits of thinking that people have and, and how do you think bigger or think deeper? Um, can you disappear down kind of a, a root cause rabbit hole? How do you know that you've gone down deep enough or you've arrived at the root cause? Um, I'm sure there are sort of a lot of times that product managers make a lot of changes. Maybe they're big, maybe they're small and there are still issues. Issues. So how do you sort of know when you've when you've cracked it and when you've hit the root of the issue? Right. I do think that that's the art part of this. That is definitely the most difficult aspect in terms of whether you've done enough. But I would say that one way to address this is through a structured approach. So, you know, once all the ideas are out there, you know, whether you have enough to make a big enough change or not, I think is one way. And then to, you know, um, characterize the the cost and the risk of each of the things that you're trying. Mm-hmm. To some degree, it also depends on your environment and your strategic context because, you know, I, I would say that there are, in practical reality, fundamental limitations. Like if there's a company that's making a long-term commitment to, say, a, a class or genre of game or that specific game, then you definitely have a lot more time and leeway to, to experiment and do whatever you want. But, you know, you could be in a situation where it's like, well, if we don't see a dramatic material improvement in performance, then we're going to have to close our door in six weeks weeks, then that's, that's a different situation as well. So I would say that one, to explore specific types of, you know, structured and analytical thinking, to think about whether the changes you're making are big enough. You know, there's also this, you know, what I talked about, other types of ways you can try to think of new ideas to help you identify ways of improving the game, like, you know, using issue tree analysis or something like that. But yeah, fundamentally, I do think it is a marriage, structured ways of thinking and um, and modeling, as well as that art, just, just kind of your gut feel and, and experience mm-hmm. that tells you, you know, that you and the team really fundamentally believe, even though you can't prove through data that this is a problem or this new feature is going to cause, um, you know, a, a big uh, uptick in performance, for example. So let's now maybe talk about sort of more concrete types of tools used in root cause analysis, common sort of like structured methodologies that people can use for the science part of it, if not the art. Sure. Yeah. So like different types of analysis that you can use for root cause, I, I would say that generally speaking, the most common approach that I see is just to look at common or popular KPIs and just sort of wildly guess at stuff. And I'd say that's that's what a lot of PMs do. Um, and then from there, going up one level of sophistication from that approach is one that I call KPI decomposition. And in this type of analysis, you would not only look at key KPIs, but then you would sort of decompose those KPIs into component parts. And so this is actually, um, as I mentioned, a very reductionist approach, but you would continue to break that down until you identify a specific issue and then you can focus on that issue and for this type of analysis i actually did a youtube video if, if people are interested with a former scopely and current nbc universal pm victor wang and so if people are interested in that type of approach you could you know catch that video on my game makers youtube channel but there's also a more in-depth presentation by Google that covers this approach as well. In addition to this, there's sort of the five whys approach. You know, there are mm-hmm. already a lot of books and, and blogs and things written on that. So I won't go into that in too much detail. There's also sort of hypothesis-driven analysis and also just a type of analysis, which I call playbook analysis, which is essentially where, you know, there's kind of like a common list of key problems that different teams have experienced on past projects. And then the analysis and solutions that were used against those problems and that, and that kind of takes the form of like a 
you know, a Word document of some kind or a PowerPoint presentation where a lot of these things are kind of documented and people can go back and be like, hmm, okay, well, these guys faced a similar kind of problem. Let's look at the documentation in terms of what they did before. How good are game product managers at sharing knowledge and information that way? Are they sort of quite isolationist, like I'm dealing with my problems and I've solved them and I don't need to help anyone else? Or is it much more sort of, you know, community driven and I, I cracked this issue, now I want to help other PMs uh, do the same? In, in my experience, I think it really depends on the organization. I, I would say that I don't think that there are a lot of PMs who are specifically against sharing within their own organization, but it's more about, is there a practice or a group that's really looking to formalize the documentation of lessons learned and to spread those best practices you know, throughout the organization? Uh, I haven't worked at Zynga, but I've heard that at companies like Zynga, that's better formalized and... Mm -hmm. um, th there is a pretty good team and group that works to try and communicate that kind of stuff. But I would say it really just depends on the organization you're part of. And for me, the most common issue has just been teams under a lot of stress who would take the time to document and share that stuff. Right. And in some ways, the, the GPM forum is also, I mean, it's not a within an inter-organization thing, but it's more of kind of like an inter-organization industry-wide thing. Maybe kind of pro game product managers need more opportunities to kind of come together and share knowledge. So that's the kind of stuff that kind of pushes the industry forward. And, and then the last sort of common methodology used, although I, I would say it's not as common, and this is why I focused on this type of analysis during the LA Games PM forum, is uh, basically the use of logic trees. So, you know, generally, if you have X management consultants on, on your team, they may break this out, but there are basically two types of logic trees. One is called an issue tree, and one is called a hypothesis tree. And during the LA Games PM form, that's what I sort of focused on in terms of specific types of analysis. Well, before we, we walk through those, um, how common is it that you might have an ex-management consultant on your team in a game company? I think it depends on the company. You know, I've, I've heard there's a lot of ex-management uh, consultants at companies like Scopely or Blizzard. Interesting. I think it depends. I, I think the companies that have a higher investment or focus on quantitative analysis are generally the ones that would have an ex-management consultant somewhere. Right. So management consultants out there, take note, this could be your next career move. Okay, so to walk us through a hypothesis, sort of what a hypothesis tree is and, and how it's used, or you can start with issue tree if you prefer. And generally speaking, an issue tree is used when we're trying to uncover, let's say, a lot of potential ideas and try to uncover the how question of trying to achieve a desired outcome, whereas a hypothesis tree tries to focus on a specific line of investigation and focus on the why question of why we believe something is true. So let let me try to give a more specific example of each. So let's say the problem statement is how can we increase ad monetization revenue from game X by let's say 30%. And here we're going to try to uncover different lines of investigation and really different ideas for achieving that result we want. So it's a different house basically. Yeah. How can we do this? And so that's the focus. And so in this example, we could have ideas around, let's say, you know, how would we do that? We could optimize existing placements. We can integrate new placements. 
We could try to get more money from ad networks or any other ideas here that could potentially drive that result. Whereas for an issue tree, we would focus on a specific line of investigation. And so let's say in this admon example, let's say we have an idea that increasing frequency caps could very significantly improve, you know, admon revenue, for example. Then in this case, you know, we would use a hypothesis tree to break this down and ask a lot of why-based questions rather than the how-based questions to try to drill down on why we think this is true and can we prove or disprove this line of thinking. And sort of, do you find yourself more often looking at whys or hows, or is it really always dependent on the problem? So it depends on the situation. Generally comes about when we do some type of um, comparative analysis. So for example, let's say that we have a game and you know we, we use App Annie or Sensor Tower to try and find the KPIs of a competitive product in the market. And let's say we think that, let's say our D7 retention is lower than comparable games in the marketplace, then we would start with an issue tree and, and try to think through, okay, what are we missing? How can we drive D7 retention? And then let's say that we think there's a specific line of investigation or we have a specific hypothesis of why D7 retention may be low. And I've actually been um, running this analysis with a couple of companies recently where you know one of the hypotheses is because for like a multiplayer PVP game that the CCU is just too low and that the matchmaking isn't good enough. And so then we would use a hypothesis tree given that specific hypothesis to then break down, okay, you know, we would start with this hypothesis tree that we can increase D7 retention by X by significantly increasing CCU to improve matchmaking. And then we would then really drive into the whys. Why do we think this is true? And then to, you know, try to prove or disprove this hypothesis. Um, okay, so maybe as kind of a last question more generally, because we've covered quite a bit of material today that sort of cross references from psychology and kind of economics or behavioral economics to kind of science and engineering. What do you think, and you, you also have a very kind of varied background, um, what do you think is kind of the ideal background for a game product manager in today's industry? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question, but I would also say it depends on the situational context. So things like the kind of product you're working on, what the needs of that product is, who else is on your team and how that team is structured, and also the environment and culture of the team that you are part of and whether you're a good match for that environment and culture. But more generally speaking, I think a great PM generally is one that has one, a strong quantitative background, two, has great logical and structured thinking, but three, at the same time, is aware of some of these cognitive and political biases and finally can just appreciate the problems and limitations of reductionist thinking and take additional types of thinking and analysis into context. And finally, I would say just a PM who has a focus on continuous improvement and learning. And, you know, I, I think that there has been this issue where a lot of PMs and I would say a lot of organizations generally tend to think of continuous improvement and there's a focus on product, right? And so it's like, oh, how can we improve this product? And there's all this sophisticated thinking and there's all this effort and work on the product. But for me, the best PMs are, are those that not only think about improvement and focus on the product, but also on the organization and the team. And so those PMs that are able to treat their teams and their organizations like a product and to focus on continuous improvement against the team as well as the product itself. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense um, and it's super interesting. Thank you very much for being on the show today, Joe, and everyone else uh, for, for listening or JK. And if anyone wants to know more about root cause analysis, specific examples, issues 
evolutionary trees, hypothesis trees, and all manner of other interesting stuff, clearly uh, stay tuned and follow Joe on, on his Game Makers blog or YouTube channel. And thank you very much for your time. It's great to be on. And definitely looking forward to, uh, to, to more PM interviews uh, coming up. Yes, stay tuned for many more of those. Thinking fast or thinking slow? Thinking slow. Game Boy or Xbox? Game Boy. Hyper casual or casual? Casual. Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? I would say Justin Bieber. (laughs) 